join me in prayer? Lord God, we are talking about a world with no walls at a time when we're so aware that there are so many divisions and walls in our world. So we just fall on our faces before you because we need you. And in our lives and in our country, fear, God, so often grips us. Fear has become like a defining narrative, even among Christians. And so this fear pops up, fear of unemployment or fear of the unknown, fear of people from other countries, maybe perhaps most of all fear of terrorism in our country. But God, you command us not to fear, to instead place our trust in you. So this morning we come as we are. Once again, we confess our fears to you. We bring them before you. And we ask you to bring healing to our world. God, you've welcomed us as strangers, and we just sang about it. You came to our rescue. We were separated from you by sin, and we remember that as you welcomed us, you have told us to welcome the stranger. We remember your words, for I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. You have taught us, God, to see you in others. And yet, God, time and time again, I find my heart gets so self-preoccupied, so self-oriented. I pray, God, that you would make me and make our community more into the kind of other-oriented people you intend for us to be. Eyes to see you in those who are vulnerable. Eyes to see you in those who are suffering. This morning, God, we remember that as your followers, we live to follow your example as one who lays down his life for his brother, for his friend. We are not a me-first people. We are other-oriented because of Jesus. And God, we don't, we don't have the answers for our broken world. God, you speak words of life. You speak words of peace. You speak words of hope and reconciliation. And you dream of a world and you are bringing a world that is a world with no walls and a world with no division. And so, God, would you speak your words of peace into our hearts and into our lives and into our world, your words of hope, that we so desperately need your words of peace that we would cling to them. 
Would you move us past, God, emotions into people who are acting as people who believe that you hold the world in the palm of your hand? Would you make us those kind of people? We pray as you taught us to pray, Lord, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and all God's people said, amen. Well, if you could stand on the moon, if we could just fly there right now and stand together and look back at planet Earth, we'd see the big planet Earth ball of blue and turquoise and land separating sea from uh, the, you know, the mountains and the land. We would see that big planet Earth. And looking at it, we could see different things. We could see the clouds. We could see the taupe color of the Sahara. We could see the white peaks of the Himalayas. And then snaking through all of that, we could see this line that separates one part from another. Do you know what it is? From the moon, looking back at Earth from outer space, we could see the Great Wall of China. Isn't that amazing? Standing like in outer space, you can look back at planet Earth and see all the things that God made except one thing that man made, and that is a wall. Maybe it should be no surprise because we've been talking in this series that we are expert wall builders. Typically, they are walls of a more subtle kind, though. Often it's racial walls, socio-political walls, economic walls. We are expert wall builders. And here's the tragedy. These walls represent divisions. They represent our brokenness. They speak to the fact that our world is not the way it is supposed to be. Over the last four weeks, we have been saying this line over and over each week. It's a line that comes from Robert Frost's poem, Mending Wall. And the line is just this, something there is that doesn't love a wall, that wants it down. And we've been saying, because of Paul's teaching in Ephesians, that something is the kingdom of God. That something there is that doesn't love a wall, that wants it down, that something is the kingdom of God. And here is the message we need to hear afresh over and over from Ephesians. God is in the uniting business. His passion is reconciliation. Christ's redemptive work is wall-destroying. The burning heart of God is towards peace. God himself is one. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So the first part of Ephesians 2 is we are invited into oneness with him. And then we are to work for reconciliation and oneness with each other. There's an old classic movie, Places in the Heart. I don't know how many of you remember. It's a very old movie. But in that movie, there is this town in the Old South that is very divided. Blacks and whites, huge division. Even the churches in the town are totally segregated. And in that movie, it's very... Uh, very interesting scene because uh, the so-called like righteous people in the movie are either prejudiced themselves or completely passive in the forces of you know just 
uh, obvious need for healing. And people are talking about love and they're talking about Christ, uh, but the love that they showed towards each other in this movie is very rarely Christ-like. It's just like awful news after awful news uh, throughout the movie. But the final scene in the movie, if you remember it, and if you haven't, I'll just paint it for you. Uh, the final scene in this movie is they're in this all like Caucasian church that you've seen throughout, so you kind of know it. And um, the church service starts, and it's just kind of business as usual, and the guy's talking. And then they get to communion, and they're all sitting in pews, and uh, they begin passing the elements of communion down the pews, person to person. And uh, the camera zooms in close. And it's going from person to person. And all of a sudden, it zooms in on this black man who had been lynched earlier in the movie but he's alive. And then it goes next to the sheriff, the uh, police officer who he accidentally had killed, who is alive. And they keep passing the elements of communion and the camera is zoomed in on each face. And uh, it comes to, you know, the, the next person who's sitting there and um, it's a person who had exploited and condemned or ignored the plight of those of a different color throughout the movie. But now, in this final scene, they are humbly passing the bread and receiving the wine. And you just realize in this final moment of this movie that this communion is a picture of every time we gather around communion, what it is pointing towards. It is a picture of heaven where there are no more walls, where there is no more division, where people who have um, hated one another here are finally healed, where all of the physical and spiritual and social sicknesses of humanity are finally healed and we are finally free. And in that scene, you just see like people are seeing each other as brothers and sisters deeply loved by God, all in need of God's grace, and all humbly sharing it with each other. Um, so until that day, what do we do? We gather, we confess our personal sin, we lament our corporate brokenness, we join together in communion this picture of what is to come. We anticipate it's in a sense like we gather and worship. I was thinking about this in the first service when we were singing, just that this is like a defiant thing to gather together in worship and to remind ourselves, my life is not about me first. I am following God in the way of Jesus who taught me to lay down my life for others. It is defiant to be here. It is countercultural to participate in the Eucharist each week. We turn to God who is our hope and our salvation, whose grace is sufficient for all of our needs. So we come, it's like we come each week to the table in communion and we say, God, forgive us, renew us, fill us, use us until that day, finally, like at the end of that movie, when we are free and there's no more divisions and there's no more walls. Until that day when your kingdom come, your will be done fully and completely and finally on earth as it is in heaven.
and we imagine that and we anticipate that and we train our hearts to love what God loves while we're here on earth. Because when the world looks at the church, the portrait of Jesus, Jesus that they should see the clearest is a Savior who reconciles. A Savior who makes enemies into friends, both horizontally and vertically. A Savior who reconciles people to God and then people to each other. Because Jesus' death is a reconciling The heart of God is always towards oneness. The work of God is always towards breaking down walls rather than resurrecting them. So in Ephesians 2, we've been looking at this grand drama of Jesus. Jesus who takes through his blood on the cross, through his body, wins unity, not just for the church, but for the whole broken world. And that his death is the only true power for reconciliation. When we read Ephesians, we just see like how God intends the church to be. And we are not to be, and we talked about this last week, a community that never disagrees. This is not about we're just um, conforming into some uniform group of yes people. We talked last week about how John paints this picture of heaven, rich diversity. We are not all to look the same and sound the same and think the same. We don't stamp out our differences. We are not colorblind. We're different, but we are united around something larger than the categories our world creates. We talked one time in several, a while back, probably a year ago, about a guitar. You play one note, that's unity, you could say. But a better word for unity when we talk about the church is three notes in harmony. Three different notes in harmony. Harmony is almost a better picture because it's not sameness. It's not everyone's all the same note. It's that there's these differences united. And what is the unity? Well, in Ephesians, Paul says, we all love and serve Jesus, and our common ground is one God, one faith, one baptism, one hope. And that is vastly wider than all of our differences. One God, one faith, one baptism, one hope. A while ago, I was reading a book. I would recommend to you, it's Francis Schaeffer's book called The Mark of the Christian, It was written a long time ago, uh, but it's very relevant to us today. It's like 65 pages long, so very uh, readable. But there's a story he tells in that book that has just stayed with me. Because what do you do when you're reading Ephesians and you're seeing these themes of reconciliation with God, unity in the church, but you have massive differences in perspective and viewpoint among people among culture, uh, what do you do with the, when those differences clash? And um, very interesting because Francis Schaeffer tells a story that has stayed with me. I'd like to share it with you. Um, he's talking about Christ followers in Germany immediately following World War II. He says this, In order to control the church, Hitler commanded the union of all religious groups in Germany, drawing them together by law. The brethren, the Christ followers, the Christians, they divided over this issue. 
half accepted Hitler's dictum and half refused. The ones who submitted, of course, had a much easier time. But gradually in this organizational oneness with the liberal groups, their own doctrinal sharpness and spiritual life withered. On the other hand, the group that stayed out remained spiritual, spiritually viral, but there was hardly a family in which someone did not die in a German concentration camp. Now, can you imagine the emotional tension? The war is over, and these Christian brothers face each other again. They had the same doctrine, and they had worked together for more than a generation. Now what is going to happen? One man remembers that his father died in a concentration camp and knows that these people over here remain safe. But people on the other side have deep personal feelings as well. Then gradually, these brothers came to know that this situation just would not do. The time was appointed when the leaders, the elders of the two groups, could meet together in a certain quiet place. I asked the man who told me this, what did you do? And he said, well, I'll tell you what we did. We came together. We set aside several days in which each man would search his own heart. And here was a real difference because the emotions were deeply, deeply stirred. My father's gone to the concentration camp. My mother was dragged away. These things are not just little pebbles on the beach. They reach into the deep wellsprings of human emotions. But these people understood the command of Christ at this place. And for several days, every man did nothing except search his own heart concerning his own failures and the commands of Christ. When they met together, I asked the man, what happened then? And he said, we just were one. To my mind, this is exactly what Jesus speaks of. The Father has sent the Son. That story has just stuck with me. Because Paul says the purpose of unity is a couple of things. First of all, it's maturity. Two, it's that we wouldn't be batted around. But also, there is this vision of the church that Paul has that the topsy-turvy world might look at the church and see a portrait of Jesus. That God has set things up in such a way that if anybody asks, what's Jesus like? Who is Jesus? Is he loving? Is he good? Is he just? Is he generous? Does he comfort the oppressed? Will he confront the oppressor? All they have to do is look at the church to get that answer. So in John 17, Jesus is praying for all believers, and he says this, I have given them, that's us, Jesus says, I have given them, that's us, the glory you gave me, God, 
so that they may be one as we are one, I and them and you and me, that they may be perfectly united so that the world may know. Here's the purpose. So that the world may know that you sent me and have loved them just as you have loved me. If you're paying attention, if you're awake at all, you know the challenge of these teachings in our world today. I remember when I was growing up, uh, the church I grew up in, uh, the co- like the lead pastors of that church, Jill and Stuart Briscoe, used to tell a story about a small group that uh, was just foundational in the early days of that church that they led. And this is back in the 70s, but they would always talk about Bob and Wynn Couchman, this couple. And Bob and Wynn Couchman had this group in their home on Sunday nights, no joke, they called it Forever Family. That was the name of this small group, Forever Family. So Bob and Wynn Couchman had this group in their home, and Jill and Stuart Briscoe, the pastors of that church, would tell the story of going over to this small group for the first time, and they drive up to the house, and all the furniture is, or a bunch of the furniture is in the front yard of the house, because Bob and Wynn, their group was so popular, it was like standing room only, they would haul furniture out of their living room to make room for all the people that came to this group. Now in Wisconsin, in the winter, your furniture is sitting in the snow. (laughs) But they cared more about the gathering of people into this family, forever family group they hosted. They cared more about the people coming, participating, than they did about their furniture. And so Bob and Wynn, you'd hear these stories about them and the the group that they hosted. And uh, the group was meeting in the 70s, and that was a time when a lot of people had just become disillusioned with church. But their gathering welcomed this diverse group of wandering souls. People from all different backgrounds. And the group came to live into their name. It was a family. Because they began to see that their earthly family boundaries didn't matter when you have a group of people who identified their allegiance to their mutual shared heavenly father. It's like redefining family. And of course, their understanding for this vision forever family group came from Ephesians 2 that we've been talking about. And I love this translation of this passage of scripture. But now in King Jesus... You have been brought near in the king's blood. Yes, you, who used to be a long way away. He is our peace, you see. He has made the two to be one. He has pulled down the barrier, the dividing wall, that turns us into enemies of each other. He has done this in his flesh by abolishing the law with its commands and instructions. The point of doing all this was to create, here's the point, was to create in him one new human being out of the two. So making peace. God was reconciling both of us to himself in a single body through the cross by killing the enmity in him. Jesus has created one 
new human being out of the two, one new human family, a forever family. And this family is formed and it grows when people find their allegiance in Jesus rather than in their earthly families or the realities, divisions to which so often we align ourselves. That our primary identity is we're citizens of heaven. Our father is in heaven. Our family is the church. Our primary identity is we are here as strangers. Our home is somewhere else. God's created a new entity called the family of God, called the new community, called the church. And it is where his spirit dwells. That means that we are brothers and sisters with each other. We live a new way with Jesus as our guide. And we are to bring about reconciliation in a fractured world. Our world ought to be different because the family of God exists and the way in which the family of God lives. So in a sense, I can say, while I love my earthly family, I'm closer to them because of our new family status in Jesus. So the political affiliations are eternally insignificant. The economic status is eternally insignificant. The ethnic differences, they are not irrelevant. These things matter from a justice perspective. They matter from a paying attention to people's stories. But it's like that vision at the end of that movie. There is a day coming when all walls are down, all divisions are gone, and we begin living like that now because we give the world this picture of what is to come. We begin building the kingdom of heaven here on earth now. We are one new body representing the king, Jesus, in a deeply divided world. So we are to be a fellowship, a community, a family of difference. We differ socially. We differ culturally. God, God designed the church to be a mixture of people from all across the map, all across the spectrum, men and women, rich and poor. All too often, of course, and, you know, it looks like a fellowship of sames and like some of you grew up in churches where there was almost no variety at all, like same beliefs about everything, same tastes and music and worship and sermons, lifestyle. Uh, Scott McKnight, in his book called A Fellowship of Difference, he says this, the church is God's world-changing social experiment of bringing unlikes and difference to the table to share life with one another as a new kind of family. When this happens, we show to the world what love, justice, peace, reconciliation, and life together is designed by God to be. I love this line. The church is God's show and tell for the world to see how God wants us to live as a family. Last week, Wynne, from Bob and Wynne Couchman, last week Wynne died. She was 93 years old. And you know, she was still... She, she was still inviting people into the forever family. 
was at a different location. She was in a senior home. But she was still inviting people into the family of God. Even though that location changed. And she, um, she passed away. She is, Wynn is gone now. Um, and I just think about her and I think about her legacy. And I think that's, that's our vision as a church to be creating environments of various sizes in various places around this city where people can gather and know that there is neither rich nor poor, neither Democrat nor Republican, neither Caucasian or African American or Asian or Latino, that we are one body in Christ living out the way of Jesus by his spirit. It's like we follow in Wynn's footsteps because Wynn followed in Jesus' footsteps. And you know, her work is done now. Our work continues. But one day, we join her. We join her at that table, that table of rich, beautiful diversity, that table where there are no walls, no divisions, a world without walls. We join her there one day, and until then, we pray, God, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, and may it start with me.